Okay, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32, I'm going to continue our journey. Let's just again just commit this uh, time of study to the Lord, shall we? Father, we just ask for your blessing now as we come to your word. We come, Father, humbly. Lord, take away any preconceived ideas, any thoughts, Lord, anything in our heart that would stop us from seeing what you would have us see this morning or receiving what you have for us. Father, speak to us, we pray, through your spirit. Lord, your word says that where two or three are gathered, there you are in the midst. And Lord, we want you to be right here, right in the midst of this time of study now. Uh, Father, open our eyes and ears, we pray, for your glory, that we will grow together in knowledge and grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the situation in our journey, we've come with Jacob all the way through this uh, incredible upbringing. Uh, The feud that existed between himself and his brother Esau that had led him to flee from his home uh, very much at the counsel of Rebecca his mum she didn't want him to be killed by his brother who was now issuing death threats to him uh, because the whole situation to do with his birthright so Jacob has fled the land and for 20 years now he's been away up with Uncle Laban in Padan Aram and uh, just incredible experience for him there learning gradually the things that God wanted to teach him about integrity, about faithfulness. And he's been cheated by Uncle Laban and swindled a number of occasions. Of course, the first issue was regarding his wife he wanted to marry. First of all, Rachel ends up with uh, Leah and then ends up with with both of them and then ends up with their handmaids because of the whole situation of them not being able to bear children or Rachel not being able to bear children and so on. So just an incredible situation that leads him now to this point where he realizes that it's time to go back. God reveals to him through the circumstances, and that's often how God works. Some people say, I I don't hear God speak, but we do, because God will speak to us through circumstances, through the things that we go through in our lives. And Jacob had got to this point that Laban's countenance wasn't toward him as it was before. And Laban's sons had been um, stirring things up, saying that Jacob stole everything that was our father's, which of course wasn't true, but a good lie is uh, is hard to, to put down. And so Jacob had gone to his wives and said, look, I really feel that this is what God is saying now to me, that I should go back. And they said, great, let's go. We've got no inheritance here. Let's go with you. And so he kind of sneaks away. Uncle Laban chases after him. Takes about seven days or so. Eventually they catch up with him as they're getting to kind of the border of Israel now. And basically they, they have this conversation. Laban had been spoken to by God the night before in a dream saying, don't hurt Jacob or else. So Laban comes, a bit sheepish really, and uh, they make this agreement, this covenant, which on the surface makes you kind of all nice and happy, but really it's uh, they draw a line in the sand. And Laban is saying, you look after my daughters. I don't trust you, but God will watch over you, and you look after them. If you do any harm to them, then well, God will deal with you. And this line here that we're drawing, if you cross over this line, if you come back this way, I'll kill you. That's effectively the the, uh, the agreement that's put in place. And, and Jacob signs up to this. Jacob acknowledges that that this is now a, an ending of a chapter of his life. But the real problem for, for Jacob is that he's now closed that door. He knows he can't cross over that line. But he also knows that he's going back into an environment to face his brother Esau. The last time he saw him, wanted to kill him. And if you remember, that basically Rebecca had said, look... Go away, flee, go, go up to my brother to Laban and stay there until I tell you everything's okay. And that was 20 years ago and he's heard nothing since. 
So he's got no reason to believe that now things are okay, but he's going back anyway. He feels God has, well, God clearly had spoken to him and told him to, to return to this land that had been promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and reiterated many times now to Jacob as well. So that's the, the situation that we get to. So Jacob now is coming back into this land, very much kind of between a rock and a hard place. Can't go backwards, but is very concerned about going forwards. So we pick up in Genesis 32. The first verse says, And Jacob went on his way. That's leaving Uncle Laban, leaving that past behind him. And we read this incredible statement, And the angels of God met him. I mean, what, a, what a situation. Jacob here fearful for what the future might hold. And God in his mercy sends angels to greet him. Now this is going to stir up a lot of thoughts in Jacob's heart and mind because 20 years ago as he left this place at Bethel, he'd also had an incredible encounter where he'd seen this ladder and angels ascending and descending and so on. And he calls that place the house of God, Bethel. And we read in verse 2, And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's host. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. This is an interesting word, interesting situation. The name effectively means two camps. But there's a lot more to this than maybe just what we see on the surface. This phrase, by the way, the angels of God, in the Hebrew as it's translated, only occurs twice. It occurs here and that previous encounter that Jacob had had when he was on his way out of the land. There's a definite parallel between these two experiences. As he was going out, God was reminding him that he was going to be with him. As he's coming back, it's very much the same. And and that phrase, or the word that's translated this, as in this is the place of God, or the the idea here, is again used four times. But again, both in these two chapters, chapter 28, which speaks of that journey out of the land, now again coming back in. So firstly, this is the gate of heaven as he was leaving, and then this is the camp of God as he's coming back in. And again, in both cases, Jacob interprets what he'd seen before he kind of names the place. In both times, we see him name this location. And you see identical expressions. There's definitely a parallel of ideas here. And again, the the Hebrew words here, just this implication to to go on one's way or to take a journey of being used. And, And really what we see here is God confirming to Jacob that he's going to be with him. That as he was going out of the land, God had said that he would be with him and would bring him back to this place. And now he's coming back. It's almost as if he's gone out through a gate and he's coming back in through a gate. Both times encountering these angels. You know, the book of Hebrews tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to them that are heirs of salvation. Well, if you're saved, that means that angels are working in and around your life. We're not told specifically what they do or how they operate, but they're ministering spirits. There's all sorts of incredible accounts that have been recorded. Billy Graham wrote a book many years ago about angels. wrote a good book on the the back by Don Stewart, uh, one of the Calvary pastors, uh, about angels as well. Uh, And there's been many verified and recorded instances where supernatural experiences have taken place and people have, have had where clearly angels have been involved. We're also told that sometimes we might entertain angels unawares. You know, it could be that somebody could pop along one morning that we don't know who they are and they may offer a word of encouragement and we may never see them again. You know, the, quite clearly, 
God can work and chooses to work on occasions in that way. So what is all this about? Well, again, the, the name, Mahanaim, these two camps. I think another thing that, that really comes through this is not just the, the two camps. As in, you know, Previously, there have been this place where Jacob had met with God, and now this other, this occasion is coming back. But I think Jacob is seeing something that we get to see once we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That there are, in a sense, two realities. There's the world in which we live. There's the physical world in which we live right now. You know, we're, we're bound by the, the laws that God has put in place in the universe. You know, this is, a, this is the physical world in which we live. And yet we can't deny that there is a spiritual world as well. You know, the world tries its best to understand these things and all sorts of uh, attempts are made to explain. But ultimately the world always falls short. But God, through Scripture, makes it very clear that the real reality, the real world, is not the one we see. The real world is this spiritual world that exists outside and beyond the, the physical life. You know, everything that, that's physical will one day be burnt up and destroyed, even just from a, a secular perspective. Secular scientists know that this earth, this world, the universe can't carry on forever. They speak about the, the ultimate heat death when all the energy that can be transferred will have been done so and everything will just grind to a halt. Of course, they talk about it being millions or billions of years in the future and nothing for us to worry about right now. But it does, of course, indicate that this world and this universe haven't been here forever. That there had to have been a beginning. Isn't that what the Bible says, the opening verse of the Bible, in the beginning? Well, the Bible got that right, didn't it? In fact, the Bible, in the opening chapters of Genesis, gives us a lot that science has now verified. The opening chapter, or the opening verses of Genesis tell us that we have time, space, and matter that make up our reality. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In that sentence, you have all of those components that make up the, the reality that we live in. But of course, God is outside of time. God is outside of matter. God existed before matter existed, before time existed. People sometimes try and reason and ask the question about well what was there before god there was no before god because before is time time is something that god has created and time by the way is a, a physical property it varies with mass acceleration and gravity and so on so time we know is also part of this physical universe but the real universe the real world in a sense if i may use that expression it's not that which we see with our eyes. And Jacob here being introduced again to remind him that it's not just the physical that makes up our lives when we put our trust in God. And he sees these angelic beings as a reminder that there are two camps. There's that which we see naturally and there's that which we see spiritually. We sang that song this morning, God of Angel Armies. Talking, of course, of that occasion with Elisha. And Elisha's servant is in all of it of a fluster and a panic because the enemy is surrounding them. And there's a lot of them. And his servant's like, well, what shall we do? And Elisha very calmly just says, look, they that are with us are far more. And he just prays, God, open his eyes. God opens the servant's eyes and suddenly he looks and around the top of the hills, the army of the Lord, an angelic army, ready to intervene. We see the situation in the days of Hezekiah, of course, as well, where the king 
of Assyria had sent his uh, envoy to go and breathe these threats against Jerusalem. They'd already taken Lashish and destroyed it. And they come up to Jerusalem and they start speaking in Hebrew and the people, Hezekiah's men say, could you not speak in Hebrew because everybody can hear it? And they say, no, no, we're going to speak because we want everybody to hear this. We are going to destroy your city. No other God has been able to protect their city. And it's a great example of faith because Hezekiah is in a position that he has no natural way of repelling this attack from Assyria. And by the way, you, you can go to the British Museum, you can see all the evidence of this episode of history. And what happens is that God intervenes. This Syrian king and his envoy, breathing out these blasphemous statements that, that God can't protect you and so on. Well, seemingly one night after supper, one angel goes out and kills 185,000 Assyrian infantrymen, soldiers. Course, they retreat, they never come back after that. And we know from history that, that Assyria, from that point on, the, the, the kingdom just weakened, it fell apart, soon to be conquered by Egypt and then Babylon and so on. God working supernaturally through the ministry of angels again. Jesus himself in the, the wilderness in Luke 4, tempted by the devil for 40 days, for 40 nights. Well, actually. He was, Jesus was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of that period of time, when Jesus was weak physically, Satan comes and tempts him. And of course, after Jesus does what we should all do, which was revert to the word of God. Don't base anything on your own understanding. Go back to God's word. Everything that Jesus said was from God's word. That's all we need. God's words are far more powerful than ours. Angels came and comforted Jesus. So we see these angelic beings occur so frequently. And, and we may not see them with our own eyes right now. But there's no denying what Scripture teaches. And we need to be living not just with this kind of like knowledge that angels are around about us. But also that this world is really not our home. Yeah, we're citizens of heaven. That's what the Bible says. Yeah, you, some of you may have passports and it will be stamped with a, a brief passport stamp. Or if you're from other countries with, with whatever country of origin. But we are citizens of heaven. That's where we are from now. And we're here to be ambassadors. An ambassador is somebody who represents their king in a foreign realm. Well, that's what God would have of each of us. That we're representing our king in a foreign realm. Now, the challenge for us, of course, is the world doesn't understand. The world doesn't see the reality of these things, that doesn't change it. And for us, it should give us a great comfort, as it does seemingly for Jacob in this situation. Let's carry on and see where we go from here. Because verse 3 says, And Jacob sent messages before him to Esau, his brother, unto the land of Seir, to the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall you speak unto my lord Esau. Thy servant Jacob says, Thus I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen and asses and flocks and men servants and women servants. I'm not sure whether he's saying that to try and impress Esau a little bit to think that his uh, younger brother, albeit by just a, a few moments younger, but his younger brother 
has done quite well for himself now. But he says, and I sent to tell my Lord that I may find grace in thy sight. It's going to be very interesting how Jacob goes about this because even given this incredible experience of realizing this, this two camps, even having that assurance that God is with him as he's entering back into the land, after seeing God just deliver him for Uncle Laban, supernaturally, he still decides he's going to try and have a, a little go himself just in case. And he speaks here that he may find grace in the sight of his brother. You know, grace is unmerited favor. And yet we're going to see Jacob send a whole load of stuff ahead. See if he can buy that grace. You know, we, we do the same with God. We try and do things or be someone or something that we might receive God's grace. It doesn't work that way. And the message is returned to Jacob saying, we came to thy brother Esau, and also he cometh to meet thee, and 400 men with him. Now, it, it seems there's a glaring omission here in the information they bring back. Because there's no record of what kind of mood was he in? Did he have a smile on his face? Did he have a, a bit of a frown on his face? Was he walking quite happily, or was he kind of walking with real purpose? And they come and they go, I forgot to ask. Didn't really look. Sorry, Jacob. So we read, verse 7, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Because you don't really bring 400 men just to have a little picnic in the wilderness with your brother that's coming back. It sounds like he's bringing an army with him. And and then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. I mean, that's a good translation, but it doesn't quite convey the intensity. I mean, Jacob really was panicking at this point and this is what we read and he divided the people that was with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two bands it separates into two groups and he said if Esau come to the one company and smite it then the other company which is left shall escape you see this is what we do God reveals to us that he's in complete control a situation, a circumstance, a revelation, we read something in God's word, whatever it is. Maybe even this morning, just being reminded of those two camps. Being reminded of the, the supernatural world that we don't see with our eyes. Where God is on the throne. Where there's a myriad of angelic beings serving the Lord and ministering to those that are as a salvation. Yeah, we have those experiences, but then we get to a little problem situation. And it's, well, let's, let's make some plans anyway. See if we can just help out. I mean, all through Scripture, we see people trying to do this kind of thing. Now, what is it that Jacob could do that God had forgotten? What plans could Jacob make that would fill in any gap that God had left? Again, he says, If you shall come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. Really? How, if Esau was that intent on destroying his brother and all those that are with him, Would he not chase after that other one company? We're going to read later that they couldn't travel that quickly because there was children and cattle and so on with them. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac. Have you prayed like this? You've been in a situation where you don't quite know where to turn. And so your prayers change. They go from being, dear Lord, or however you would start your prayer, to, 
God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you start really trying to appeal to God, it's like if we use all the names for God that we can possibly imagine, then God might actually listen and do something. And it kind of seems that Jacob is trying the same thing here. God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac. And he hasn't finished. He said, the Lord which said unto me, return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. Just pause for a second. Isn't there enough in that sentence? God had said, return to your country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. He's kind of repeating it to God as if to kind of get God's attention without really realizing what God was saying. You know, sometimes when we pray, and it's a great way, and I encourage you, when you pray, use Scripture. There's some of the most wonderful prayers in Scripture are where the person praying is quoting Scripture in their prayers. We see it a lot with David. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, a wonderful prayer, crying out to God on behalf of Israel and quoting almost verbatim things that Solomon had said about the way God had promised to look after the nation. Now, when you pray, use Scripture, use God's words. It's a great way to pray. But don't just use them. Read them. Believe them. Return to thy country and to thy kindred, God has said, and I will do well with thee. And yet, Jacob carries on. And then he says, Oh, I'm not worthy of the least of all thy mercies. What he's saying there, of course, is, Lord, I really want your mercy. And of all the truth which thou hast shown unto thy servant, and almost that implication there, of, you know, you show me all of this, Lord, don't let it come to an end at this point. He says, for with my staff, with just this rod that I've got in my hand, I passed over this Jordan, and now I become two bands. There's two groups of people that I'm just dividing into. And he says, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, just in case God wasn't sure, just has to remind him, from the hand of my brother, the Esau I'm talking about, for I fear him. What is it scripture says that casts out fear? Perfect love. Hasn't God already shown that to Jacob? God has already shown that perfect love to him. God has been with him for these 20 years. And Do you remember the little speech that Jacob gave to Rachel and to Leah? About the way that God had blessed him. Talking about the cattle and the way that they multiplied and he said, if I, if I chose those, then God caused those to multiply. And if I chose these, then God chose these to multiply. God has blessed me. See, Jacob knows it all in his heart. But it's connecting with his mind. It's making it real. You know, we, we did a series some years ago, um, the beginning of, a, a, I don't know, which two years ago maybe, uh, on the promises of God. And, and Scripture is full of promises that God gives us. I told the anecdote, and I'll just share with you again now. I believe it was Don McClure, one of the Carrow Chapel pastors, was, was teaching a, a, a message all about the promises of God, how wonderful God is and how faithful God is and how we can rely on the things he said. And this lady came up after the meeting and she was, seemed to be very troubled and she was talking to him about the problems and, and so on she was experiencing and kind of asking for advice and counsel. And so he turned to her and said, lady, what do you do with the promises of God? And she looked up and she said, I want to underline them in blue. You know, if, if that's all you're doing, if you're just underlining them in your Bible, it's, it's not good enough. You need to believe them. God will never forsake you. God will never fulfill you. you know, and it's incredible that although it's a, it really is a life and death situation as far as Jacob perceives it, he can't go back as we've already said. He, he's concerned about going forward and yet God has already said that he's going to prosper him. He's going to bless him. God has blessed him to this point. 
in verse 12, Thou said, I will surely do good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Well, he's not there yet. So this promise hasn't yet been fulfilled. So God hasn't yet finished with him. So it's not over. Verse 13, And he lodged there that same night and took of that which came to his hand a present for Esau, his brother. This is so he can find grace in his brother's eyes. 200 she-goats and 20 he-goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels, not sure about camel's milk, but there we go, 30 milk camels and their colts, 40 kine and 10 bulls, 20 she-asses and 10 foals. So this is a load of produce, a load of animals. He delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by themselves. He's gone breaking these groups up. And he said unto his servants, pass over before me, you go first, <laughs> after you. And put a space betwixt drove and drove. So, you know, have one group and then another bit behind it. And let's see if we can just wear Esau down with kindness and with gifts. Let's see if we can buy this grace. And he commanded the foremost, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets thee and asks thee, saying, Whose art thou? And whither goest thou? And whose art these before thee? Then thou shalt say to him, They be thy servant Jacob's. It's a present sent unto my Lord Esau. And behold, also, he's behind us. This is a gift. And so commanded he the second and the third and all that followed the drove, saying, On this manner shall you speak to Esau when you find him. And say you moreover, Behold, thy servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goeth before me. And afterward I will see his face. Poor avenger, he will accept of me. Yeah, it, it's even in the natural. Was this going to work? With all these these droves and these gifts coming before Esau, if Esau really was intent on doing harm to Jacob, would any of this change his mind? So went the present over before him, and himself lodged that night in the company. And he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two women servants and his eleven sons and passed over the ford Jabuk. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had. We read verse 24, that Jacob was left alone. And then we're told, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. You know, when God asks us a question, it's not because God needs information. It's because God wants us to think. If God ever asks you a question, it's not because he needs some help or some directions or whatever. It's because he wants you to think. Why did God ask Jacob this question? Because he wanted to think about who he was, his character his name, what his name meant. And God says to him, he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. But as a prince that has power with God and with men and has prevailed. You know, God just trying to teach Jacob another really important lesson at this point. And it's what we read in scripture that it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So much of our life is spent striving and struggling. 
Verse 29 says, And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? God doesn't tell him. Of course, Jacob realizes that this is a another supernatural encounter. And, we, and he, as God, blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. And this is what he says. He recognizes what's gone on. He says, For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And we just quick as a, a, a going on a brief tangent here, because we're told that nobody's seen God at any time. That's what John tells us. And yet here, seemingly, Jacob says that he's seen God face to face. Well, Jacob sees God in the form of a man who wrestles with him through this night. In the New Testament, we find God again come to this earth in the form of a man whom we know as Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And Jesus, we see throughout the whole of the Old Testament, appearing in different ways, times and places, appearing as a man. So in one sense, Jacob didn't see God as God is, because we're told again in John 4 that God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That, that's who God is. God can't be represented physically in that sense. And that's one of the reasons we're not to make any images to represent God, because we just can't represent who God is. But God does appear to us in human form, in a way that we can understand, to a point. And that's exactly what's going on here. And we read, and he passed over Penuel, and the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his side. He started to limp. There's this wrestling match all night has taken its toll on him. And we read in 32, Therefore the children of Israel eat not the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. This place that Jacob names, again, it's at that threshold of the promised land. Jacob is renamed, as we've just seen, and gives this place the name Peniel in response to the name that Jacob's been, been given. And again, this, this dietary restriction that then comes about because of the Jews, they still refuse to eat the, the tendon on the hind quarter of animals as a result of this. But the really interesting thing is that, that up until this point, Jacob's kind of marching on, he's thinking about how he can solve these problems. He leaves this situation limping, but spiritually so much stronger. Yeah, in our weaknesses, his strength. Let's just do the next chapter, it won't take long. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him 400 men, and he divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel, and unto the two handmaids, and he put the handmaids and their children foremost. I'm sure they were very grateful of that opportunity. And Leah and her children after, I'm sure she was very pleased that she was then given the next opportunity to meet angry Uncle Esau, as we were expecting at this point. And then Rachel and Joseph and the most. So they were at the back. So it's like, again, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen if, if, if Esau and his 400 men arrive with clubs and swords and whatever intent on, on doing harm. But. And he passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So as Esau's in the distance, he can see Jacob. And Jacob keeps getting down. And maybe you think he was doing his shoelace up or something. I don't know. But as he's seeing him, he keeps coming, bowing down. And... Verse 4, and Esau ran to meet him 
And I must have been that really nervous moment for Jacob at this point. Can anybody, is he armed? Is he, is he carrying a dagger or a sword or something? Is, is he, he saw Ransom meet him and embraced him. Fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. What a wonder reconciliation is. Yeah, time is a healer in many respects. But clearly God had engineered this circumstance. All of that we've just seen, all that stress and that worry on behalf of Jacob. It's all gone, it all evaporates. All the effort in trying to sort out what we're going to do in case God hasn't allowed for this situation, not needed. I'm sure you've been in situations where God has reminded you that we just need to trust him. Oswald Chambers said, and it's one of my favorite quotes of Oswald's, he says, if God is the God we know him to be when we are closest to him, what an impertinence worry is. Just think about that. Think about the times when you've been really, really close to God. That's the God we serve. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the God that parted the waters of the Red Sea. This is the God that made the heavens and the earth. This is the God that allowed Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael to withstand that fiery furnace with Nebuchadnezzar. This is a God that does miracles. How can we worry? God is never less able to assist us because of our mindset at that particular moment. This lovely moment as these two brothers that haven't seen each other for 20 years see each other. And it's kind of as if the, the past is forgotten. He lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are those with thee? And he said, the children which God has graciously given thy servant. So now Esau finds out that he's a brother-in-law, that he's an uncle. Looking at these children. Again, this is a very emotional, lovely moment. Then the handmaidens came near. They and their children, and they bowed themselves. And imagine Esau saying, so so, so who are these then? Oh, they're, they're, they're my other wives, my other children. Okay. And then Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves. And after this came Joseph near and Rachel and they bowed themselves. Probably you saw thinking, Christmas is going to be really expensive now. (laughs) But you know, just suddenly this family that he didn't know he had. And he said, what meanest thou by all this drove which I met? It kind of just all seems so pointless at this point, that lack of trust. And he said, these are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. You know, God had already gone before Jacob. Jacob didn't have to buy grace. You can't buy grace. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. And Jacob said, now I pray thee, if if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present on my hand. For therefore have I seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God. And now was pleased with me. You know, and there is a connection here. That's not just a flippant comment because Jacob perceived that he was going to go into this situation and end up wrestling with his brother. Instead, he ends up wrestling with God. He comes out of it limping, but seemingly trusting God far more than he had before. And he says, take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. And he urged him, and he took it. 
And he said, let us take our journey, let us go, and I will go before thee. And he said unto him, my Lord knoweth that the children are tender, and the flocks and the herds with young are with me. And if men should overdrive, then one day all the flocks, all the flock will die. Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I will lead on softly according as the cattle that goeth before me, and the children be able to endure until I come unto my Lord unto Seir, or Edom, it's the same place. So Esau's saying, come back to my place. You know, we can put the kettle on, we can get to know each other again, we can talk as a family. And Jacob said, well, look, you go ahead, because I, I can't go as quick as you can go with your man, because I've got the children and the cattle and everything else. And he makes this statement. Until I come unto my Lord unto Seir. I think this is really fascinating, because Jacob never goes. Jacob never goes to Edom. So did he lie? Was he trying to deceive Esau? Well, I think there's something more to this. I think there's a prophetic component here that it would be very easy to miss. Because I think Jacob did intend to go. In Jacob's lifetime, God never allowed that opportunity. In fact, in Jacob's descendants' lifetimes, there was never that opportunity. But that opportunity is coming. In Revelation 12, verse 1, we read, There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. This wonder that we give a number of these through Revelation. But the word wonder in Greek is this semion or sign. There appeared a great sign in heaven. Now, of course, signs signify things. That's what they do. They point to something. Jesus, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, or we have it recorded, that Jesus sent and signified this book of Revelation to John. Rendered it into signs, things that would point to something. So the challenge is simply to understand what this sign is pointing to. That's, of course, what signs do. And we see this woman clothed with the sun, the moon, under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. So the first thing we note is that this woman is clothed the clothing is not the woman, but she's under the covering of the clothing. Clothing is there, amongst other things, for protection. Who is the woman? Well, scripturally, as you study through, you see that it's mystical Eve. It's that promise that was given back in the Garden of Eden. That the Messiah would eventually come. Be born of a woman. It's the line again, started with Eve, it's come all the way down through the generations to the Messiah. And again, we're given this picture of the sun the moon the 12 stars and so on and it should straight away point us back to genesis 37 we haven't yet got there in our study but we'll see it in a few weeks time if the lord tarries that this is a great picture of the nation of israel so this woman is clothed with the nation of israel there's protection of course god used the nation of israel as a protection as a form of clothing to ensure that the seed could come all the way down so that the Messiah could be born. Israel played a hugely important part in God's plan. It's not over yet. Israel were meant to be that protective clothing. But then verse 6 of this portion in Revelation says that the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that she should feed there 1,203 score days. So three and a half years. Israel 
at a point yet in the future, during the tribulation, halfway through the time of tribulation that is coming. Israel are going to be forced to flee from their land. Because Antichrist, this character who's coming, this world leader, who's going to seem to be a wonderful person, he's going to ratify an agreement with Israel and the surrounding nations, establish some sort of covenant, a peace treaty, for want of a better expression, with Israel and the surrounding nations. But halfway through that, he's going to break that covenant. Israel are going to be forced to flee. Just as Jesus said, you remember back in Matthew 24, Jesus said, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, who so reads, let him understand. Then let them which are in Judea flee into the mountains. Jesus said that this was coming, this time was coming, when Israel were going to be forced to flee. Where are they going to flee to? Well, this seems to be a place that God has prepared. Whether it's this place, this is of course in modern day Jordan, or what we would know as Edom. This is that place known as Petra. The city that's carved out of the rock. You'll, you'll be familiar with it from films like Indiana Jones and so on. It's used uh, as a backdrop in, in that film. But it's an incredible city, very difficult to get to by natural means. But it's an incredible city carved into the rock there. Now, whether it's exactly here or around this area, somewhere around here will be the place that God will allow Israel to flee to. During his time in the book of Daniel, we're told that during the tribulation, Edom will not come under the sway or the control of Antichrist. And just as we've been looking at in this verse, verse 14, Jacob said, I will come unto my Lord unto Seir. And that prophecy has not yet been fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled. And just as Jacob said, as Israel has his name now is, Israel will go to Edom and fulfilling this prophecy these words that jacob spoke whether jacob had any concept of this at the time i believe that god was working through this particular situation we're actually going to find that jesus is actually going to go to aid israel whilst they are there it will be whilst they are there that they will look upon their messiah they'll realize that jesus is their messiah and jesus will go there to deliver them isaiah 63 1 to 4 speak of that and again that will follow Israel's calling out Hosea and many other of those minor prophets deal a lot with these details. Okay, last few verses. And Esau said, let me now leave with these some of the folk that are with me. He said, Jacob said, well, what needs it? Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way unto Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built him a house and made booths for his cattle. Therefore, uh, therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came to Shalom, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padanaram and pitched his tent before the city. And he brought a parcel of a field where he, had sprayed his te- sorry, where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And he erected there an altar and called it El Elhi Israel. This is, again, just a He's finally back in the land and he builds this altar just to offer to God, to say thank you to God. Now God hadn't left him or forsaken him. God had been with him for the whole journey. You know, I hope this morning there's that reminder that there are two camps. You know, there's the world that we see, but there's also the world that we don't see with our natural eyes, but that we should see and understand spiritually. And God will never leave us or forsake us. 
that God does go before us. God is watching over his own. We need to learn to trust him and to trust his promises. Again, what great deliverance we see and what great opportunity it gives us to praise the Lord for all that he's done. So ask somebody if they could go and uh, ask the children to come back in as we uh, just close in prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for this reminder this morning that you really are in complete control. Lord, we may not be where we thought we'd be when we started our journey. We may not be in the situations that we, we thought we'd find ourselves in. But Lord, wherever we are, you are with us. And Father, we need not worry about the next steps. Oh Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to see the circumstances for what they are. Just an opportunity for us to trust you. Lord, I know you ask us the same question every day. And that question is, will you trust me? Father, as we go through this week ahead, help us to trust you. Whatever the challenges, whatever the difficulties we face. Lord, you have purchased us with the highest price. We've been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. And Father, your word says that we are now not our own, that we belong to you. Well, Lord, as your own, we know that you will tend and look after and care for us. Oh, Father, give us that confidence, that faith to trust you. Lord, help us to walk by faith, not by sight. We ask all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen.